0: welcome back to another podcast and YouTube episode we tend to do both so that we cover kind of both kind of areas Um, and today I'm super excited to be joined by Joanna Sutton so hi Joanna. Hi thanks for having me Trish. I'm more than welcome so Joanna is an amazing employment lawyer who I had the pleasure of meeting oh god I don't know how long ago it was now a good few months ago wasn't it?
1: Yeah last year sometime I
0: feel like it was summer sort of time. I feel like it was warmer and we went for An interesting networking event where we were doing clay pigeon shooting, but wasn't clay pigeons because it was digital. Is that right? Yeah,
1: but the guns were still heavy and real.
0: Yeah, they were, they were, (laughs) but obviously not real. It was all digital for our listeners. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um but on meeting Joanna I just thought doing a podcast with her would be excellent because she's super experienced at what she does very clear when she explains things and that's going to be super helpful for our listeners um so Joanna's been doing a thing for kind of seven to eight years with Knuckles obviously you can see the logos on the screen um you work both with businesses and individuals on work related matters is that right
1: yeah that's right the full kind of spectrum of everything employment and work related for yeah both
0: sides oh fabulous so a uh, brilliant expert to have a chat to. So we've got about six cases that we're gonna have a chat about that are interesting from both an employer and an employee perspective. So we'll have a general chat and hopefully give you some kind of takeaways and things that you guys need to be aware of from those cases. So, first one centres around uh, reasonable adjustments in a recruitment process. Uh, so, in this case, I'm, I hope I'm saying it right, I've got ACOM, versus, Acom Limited versus Mallon. Here we've got a chap who applies for a job. Um, he lets the HR department know that he has dyspraxia, and actually, he's not great at filling in application forms, so he wants to send in a CV instead. So, I would see that as a reasonable adjustment. Um, The HR team kind of acknowledged that there was an issue um, and said, you know, if there's any problems, let us know, but you do need to fill out the form. And long story short, that kind of resulted in a disability discrimination claim. So for those people who don't know what we mean, how how would you describe a reasonable adjustment to start off with?
1: So, I mean, it's basically anything that can assist somebody where they have a, a disadvantage in performing, you know, the work that they're required to do. So it could be, for example... If you had a physical disability and you worked in a factory, for example, making sure that the kind of aisleways in between machinery and things like that are wide enough to get a wheelchair down, that would be a reasonable adjustment to make. Mm. So it's just something that can uh, take away that disadvantage Mm. that the employee might be experiencing um, as a result of a disability that that, that they have. And I mean, for a disability, it might be worth touching on that as well. Mm. A disability for employment law purposes isn't quite the same as it is in a sort of real world um, example of disability what people might think of. But for employment law purposes, it's a physical or mental impairment that has a substantial and long-term impact on an individual's ability to undertake normal day-to-day activities. So it's basically something that has lasted or is expected to last for at least 12 months that has a real um, impact on how you live your life. So it might be affecting you, I don't know, being able to get on the bus or go shopping, answer the telephone, things like that. So quite different from how people sometimes think of, a disability in you know normal day to day life
0: and also i think the thing for me with that definition is it's so broad yeah isn't it that that could encompass so many different things and i think that's definitely something that employers always miss
1: yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, that, as I said, it tends to be people think about that physical disability, mm-hmm. perhaps, mm-hmm. and you know, there are things like cancer, for example, is automatically classed as a disability, which, you know, people may not necessarily even think of that. Um, and there are cases, you know, some of them that we're going to be talking about today that are decided all the time that really stretch that definition. And mm-hmm. things like this case, for example, with the dyspraxia and those kind of um you know, dys dyslexia, those kind of things, these new um ideas around disability are being introduced all the time. And so employers may not automatically think, yes, that's a disability that I need to consider making some adjustments for.
0: Very good point. So what what can people learn from this one then? What would your advice be in these sorts of situations?
1: Yeah, so this one I think was, I mean, for a start, he wasn't an employee of this company. So some people think that actually you only have that obligation not to discriminate against somebody or to, you know, to make those adjustments if you've got somebody working for you. But in this case, the, the the claimant bringing the claim wasn't even an employee he was uh, applying for this job and disclosed yes he got dyspraxia and he wanted some adjustments to be made to the recruitment process and although the HR manager responded and you know offered some assistance the employment tribunal just found that actually that wasn't broad enough, um, particularly in circumstances where he specifically said, I've got dyspraxia, and that then affected his ability to, you know, to comply with their application process. And I think that this is really something that there's going to be sort of more developments in in this area, because people, you know, as I say, are having the coming forward and saying they've got these disabilities and that there there are adjustments that need to be made um, accordingly. So in this case, what the tribunal found was that actually, You know, he had asked for a telephone interview or to be able to, as you said, submit the CV and that the HR manager went back via email rather than, you know, in the forum when he was saying he'd got dyspraxia, which actually meant that he had difficulties in communicating, you know, with written communication they found that what they should have done is put the phone up to him and talk to him a bit more about the difficulties that he was having and if they had done so they would have realised you know the adjustments that could have been made to mean that you know he had a a fair chance at applying for for the job so in this case yeah the the decision was that they didn't make enough reasonable inquiries into the difficulties that he had to make those adjustments um, and that really they should have made more effort to to do that in these circumstances so I think it 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 really reinforces the need for employers to be very cautious when uh, dealing with somebody with a disability. I think that sometimes people don't want to ask questions because they're worried about saying the wrong thing Mm. Um, and actually this case really highlights that actually you need to make those inquiries because the law says basically that if an employer knew or could reasonably be expected to know that someone has a disability then that's when the duty to make reasonable adjustments kicks in. So the fact that this guy had disclosed I've got this condition, they should have asked more questions about it to actually assess whether or not it was a disability, and if so, what adjustments could have been made. So it's quite a, a harsh decision. I think in quite a lot of ways, people will probably think that it was probably you know, quite onerous on the employer just to have that one email saying, "You know, I've got this condition, can you do this instead? And they were maybe thinking they were acting reasonably because they're treating everybody the same by saying this is our online application process this is what you have to do and they assess everybody in the same way but in this case it was yeah that wasn't found to be reasonable and adjustments should have been made so yeah I think it's quite a a sort of people would see that as quite a harsh decision what do you think
0: um yeah I think I think the issue with this one is people just don't realize what the obligation is I think that initial initial point that you, um, you touched on around people not realising that even though this person isn't an employee, they're still able to make a claim. And also the impact of the small things, right? Just picking up the phone and just having a chat with this person, regardless of the condition that they've got, really, like just figuring out kind of where they're at and how you can support would have made all the difference in this case, right? So it's the small stuff that people in my view need to kind of pay attention to but equally I think that point around you know people not realizing how um broad the legislation is I think is an important one to hammer home so yeah it's interesting super interesting (laughs) definitely yeah number two Um, So this one is um, an interesting case around sexual harassment. So this is Finn versus uh, the British Bung Manufacturing Limited. Interesting company name. Um, So Finn was an electrician, uh, had worked for the company for 24 years, but no problems or no issues up to that point. There's then a a couple of heated arguments that take place and and Finn is dismissed. Um, But during one of the arguments, he's called a bold, and I'm not going to say what the following profanity was. (laughs) Um, He then brought a case um, saying that kind of he had been sexually harassed which is an interesting case I don't think I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong not sure we'd seen anything like this before um and basically this kind of centered around boldness being something that is linked more to um, men than women so therefore calling him bold and a profanity was actually something related to his sex so it was actually sexual harassment so it's super interesting because we've not seen anything like this before what do you think of this one and what are the takeaways for people
1: Yeah, definitely. A really interesting one, because I think that when people think about sexual harassment, you think about that kind of classic situation where a woman is being sexually harassed by a man and you know that is what you tend to think but actually from a legal perspective the definition of harassment and I'll read it because it's quite wordy is um, uh, unwanted conduct which has the purpose of violating an individual's dignity and creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating and offensive environment. For them so you can yeah in that sense calling somebody a bald profanity is obviously not very nice I think in this case the person who called him that was actually a supervisor working for the company as well so you know not the behavior that you would expect a supervisor to you know to act towards a, a member of staff but what was key in this case was that that behavior had to be linked to the individual sex so it had to be related to him being a man and the the uh, courts really kind of tussled with this and talked about whether or not you know baldness was inherently something that you know men would experience and i think quite often we see a lot of the, as you say it's unusual because these cases tend to be the other way around when we're talking about things like you know does the fact that somebody worked part time relate to their sex as a woman because a woman traditionally has childcare you know responsibilities that kind of thing in this case they were they considered the fact that yes, some women are bald, sometimes that's due choice, sometimes it's medical condition, alopecia, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, they found that baldness was more likely to relate to somebody being a man than, you know, another sex. And so that was, you know, the effectively the tick in the box that they needed to say, this is sexual harassment. And so the claim was successful. So I think, again, really surprising case that people wouldn't necessarily think on the face of it, that that would be be sexual harassment because it doesn't maybe fit that kind of classic definition Mm. and it's also really relevant because you know this was another member of staff making the comment to to their colleague and not the company the employer themselves making the comment and I think again Mm. what people don't realize is that an employer the company that employs these people can be found to be liable for the acts of the employees that are done in the workplace. So in this case, even though it was nothing to do with the company or a director or something like that, it was just another colleague saying something to another colleague, that that was, you know, still found to be sexual harassment that the, um, you know, the the employee was responsible for. Um, And so I think it's really relevant that people realise that actually this kind of you know, I hear it all the time where people are like, oh, it's just banter, you know, mm-hmm. that that creates an offensive culture. And I think that the way that, um, you know, things are modernising, that this kind of, you know, behaviour may have been quite commonplace where, you know, shouting insults, swearing, making offensive comments may have been more commonplace. But now it's just not acceptable in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And so one of the real takeaways for me is making sure that, you know, from a culture perspective that employers are sort of acting upon these comments being made. The first time it was made, it should have been nipped in the bud and it shouldn't have been something that then happened again
0: um, Mm -hmm. and really
1: then kind of compounded that creating that offensive um, environment. So one of the things that I think is really important is that employers are training their workforce on what is acceptable and what isn't. And I think that, that is so often overlooked, but it's really important because one of the first things that an employment tribunal will look at in, your, if, in a case like this or a discrimination case is what's your policy about, you know, um, equality in the workplace, about bullying, harassment, show me the written policy that you have that shows, you know, what you do in those circumstances, which sometimes companies just don't have. Mm. Uh, and the other thing that they ask is when did you last train your workforce about, you know what is and isn't acceptable um and those kind of op- opinions as i say change over time you know what was acceptable 20 years ago is definitely not acceptable now but even what was acceptable maybe five years ago has changed now so training and keeping that kind of knowledge is so important and it's really important from an employer's perspective because there's a potential defense to a claim like this if you can show that you have taken all reasonable steps to avoid the bad behaviour happening in the first place. And that would be, you know, we train our staff, we have a policy that makes it clear that we don't accept behaviour like this, we pull people up on it when things like this happen. And so, you know, all of those things are steps that an employer can take, which would then really, you know, put you in a much better position to be defending a claim like this. 100%
0: and I think exactly as you said I think the world's changing and moving and shifting at such a rate if we can do things to support our employees who probably aren't 100% sure what they can and can't say at any given time I think that's really really helpful personally, Um, obviously you can't make people learn things but you can provide those opportunities for people to come along and have the opportunity to get information which I think is super important. really really important yeah I think um the policy point is a really key one because when I'm doing my private work with my clients I'll often speak to people and something's happened and they're like okay well we need to do something right okay well where's the policy I don't have one it's so important to get that stuff in place up front yes you might have a happy workforce right now but you never know when something's going to happen and it's important that people know where the line in the sand is in terms of how they're going to be treated and dealt with when something goes wrong so yeah totally with you on that
1: absolutely the other interesting thing about this one that I read was that the tribunal members so the judges that made the decision there was three of them which there always are in these types of cases uh they were all bald they were all men and they were all bald so I wonder if there would have been a different decision if uh if that wasn't the case if, it, if the judges were women perhaps I don't know yeah,
0: no it's interesting I, I think it's quite interesting in, in how the, the link's been made but I'd like to think the decision wouldn't be different, but yeah, you you never know. It's kind of who's on the panel of the day, right?
1: Definitely, definitely.
0: Cool. So our next one then is um, agency workers applying for jobs. So I'm going to switch this up a little bit. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that case and then we'll have a chat?
1: (laughs) Yeah, sure. So uh, this case, uh, the guy who who brought it was employed uh, by an agency and was doing work for royal mail and uh the the company had a policy of uh announcing the uh, vacancies but they didn't let agency workers apply at the same time as They let everyone else who was directly employed by Royal Mail. So they'd say, "Hey, we've got some vacancies coming up." They tell everyone, but they wouldn't let the agency workers um, apply at the same time as the um, as the rest of the employees. And so this individual brought a claim saying, "Actually, that was a breach of the agency worker regulations." And there's a specific part of those regulations that say that agency workers have a right to be notified of vacancies um, that are available at the company that they're working for. Um, And here argued that there was a right uh, that they uh, should, that that implied that they had a right to apply for those vacancies alongside um, everybody else. Um, so quite an interesting sort of niche point about something that was not expressly in the legislation, um, but yeah, said that it had it had been implied, um, and it, essentially the tribunal found that uh, no, that isn't what the uh, sorry. The first instance, the tribunal said that there had been a breach of the regulation, and then there was an appeal, went to the employment appeal tribunal, and um, they said no the the lord just says that you have the right to be informed of the vacancy um and but it stops short of you know having a right to apply for the vacancy mm. um so quite a sort of a technical point i guess
0: mm, mm,
1: um mm. what do you think trish um so why
0: I, I suppose i'm going to answer a question with a question which i know isn't the best um <laughs> I suppose my kind of natural instinct with these sorts of things so when I'm doing my job as a CPO and I'm advertising roles internally within the organization I would give everyone the opportunity to apply all at the same time so I suppose this one kind of questions that kind of natural instinct for me yeah. so should should I be doing that or if I do that should I be holding back the applications from agency staff and then I'd be worried if I'm doing that and being discriminatory in some sort of a way so I guess for me it's a It's an interesting case, and obviously very, very technical, but where does that leave HR people or business owners? What does that mean we should or shouldn't be doing to make sure we're doing the right thing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, like you say, you know, the way that the employment law has evolved is essentially treat everybody the same. And you know, this is effectively saying, yeah, but you don't have to treat you know them the same in this way. Which I think can then get quite confusing because Mm -hmm. it also opens up the potential for yeah, there to be distinctions made, you know, for other reasons or you know on other basis. Which is just then from an HR perspective, just a bit of a, a headache and a minefield to, um, you know, to consider. And I think as well, it's really relevant because especially at the moment where there's quite a lot of redundancies and stuff going mm-hmm. on in a redundancy situation, when you are trying to avoid a redundancy and you look at other vacancies within a business, most employers, I think, would be sort of more um they would prefer to keep their own, you know, directly employed staff to offer them those suitable alternative vacancies. Mm. And so I think mm. that's something that probably happens, you know, quite frequently that they say, oh, you know, you're at risk of redundancy, but we've got these other roles. Do you want to take any of those? And so that is one of those examples where perhaps they wouldn't be opened up to agency workers because the agency worker, then they wouldn't have to pay them redundancy pay and things like that. It's an additional cost to the business. So if you can keep your directly employed staff within the business and you want to retain that talent, especially with all the stuff we've had over the last you know couple of years with the difficulties of recruiting and you know all the rest of it that that is perhaps an example of where that distinction might be made. But I think this case has been appealed and it's gone to the Supreme Court, which from an employment law perspective is always really exciting because we don't get that many cases that that go that far. (laughs) Um, And I think the decision was was being heard uh, at the end of last year, but there's no decision that's come out yet. I haven't seen anything anyway. So it's definitely one to watch because it may be that it flips on its head again and that they suddenly you know you should be treating agency workers in the same way as as directly employed staff so definitely one to to watch I think
0: yeah yeah no I'm excited to hear the outcome of that as well the things that you and I get excited about hey
1: I know exactly it's very exciting
0: Oh, cool. Um, All righty. So next one then is around uh, not coming into work during COVID or or due to COVID kind of scares, I suppose. Um, This one is Roger versus Leeds laser cutting. Uh, And effectively, as I said, he was dismissed um, because uh, didn't want to return to work um, due to kind of COVID-19 safety concerns. So this person didn't have two years service. So what's significant about that for everyone who's listening?
1: Yeah, so it's one of the first things that I always ask when actually I'm asked, uh, you know, advice about employment or situations, how long have you worked there? How long has the employee been with you? And it's relevant, because that's when quite a lot of employment rights kick in. So um, most importantly, the right not to be unfairly dismissed, you can't bring a claim for unfair dismissal unless you've worked continuously for the same company for at least two years, you don't have the right to redundancy pay, you know, various other rights don't kind of kick in. So it's really relevant when you've got an employee who's been dismissed that then you look at yeah how long have they have they been working and i think this guy had been there for less than two years as you say but then had been dismissed because he had refused to return to the workplace and because of concerns about covid and so Mm -hmm. he then looked at what what claims can i bring in those circumstances and he brought a claim for automatic unfair dismissal which doesn't have that two-year requirement you know anyone can be automatically unfairly dismissed and there's various grounds that you know, have to be relevant, but in this case, it was on the basis of raising health and safety concerns. Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah, um, he was automatically unfairly dismissed." It's quite complicated, but it's basically, if you are complaining that you were in circumstances of danger, that you uh, believe were serious and imminent, that you couldn't be reasonably be expected to avoid, and that you left your workplace as a result of that, and then you were terminated, that then triggers a claim, potential claim for automatic unfair dismissal. So quite a sort of technical one, but quite a lot of cases around at that time, you know, certainly this happened, I think, at the very, uh, during the very first lockdown. So at that very early stage where, you know, everyone was extremely concerned about their, you know, their health and safety. And I think that this guy had said he didn't want to come in because he'd got vulnerable children. He was concerned about infecting them. Mm. So legitimate concerns, uh, as many people had at at that time, and it's kind of it's taken quite a long time for these cases to work their way through the employment tribunal because of delays in the system. And so, you know, it's surprising that, yeah, we're talking about something that happened in the first lockdown, but it only was heard by the tribunal um, last year um but yeah in this case it's gone through you know employment tribunal an employment appeal tribunal and a court of appeal decision um and I don't know if you do you want to talk through the the outcome
0: yeah yeah, go for it go for it I love listening so go for
1: it oh real okay
0: I'm learning Um,
1: (laughs) so yeah the the case ultimately was uh, not successful they found that he wasn't automatically unfairly dismissed and that was basically because that kind of complicated definition of what would amount to an automatically unfair dismissal wasn't made out because although he had genuine concerns about COVID and the impact that it could have on his children and everything else the tribunal found that he could have avoided the danger because the employer had gone quite a long way in putting, um, you know, various measures in place to protect their staff. So I think it was a manufacturing business, and so they wanted to continue operating during the lockdown. So they put things in place like social distancing and masks and sanitising and staggered start and finish times. And the tribunal found that actually they had done. As much as they really could do to protect their workforce. So although the employee had a genuine concern about COVID, that the measures that were put in place were sufficient to mean that he could have avoided the danger that it presented. Mm. So I think that it's, as I say, another kind of technical one, but it it really is, it's relevant in terms of, you know, thinking about, there'll be a lot of cases that were probably still going through the employment tribunal for very similar circumstances. And it set out sort of a new relevant definition about um, the danger and, you know, the reality of that danger. And it also made clear that that had to be related to the workplace. And I think that that's quite relevant because here, um otherwise it could have been that you know just the existence of covid was enough for no one to go to work you know um and that would have just meant that you know the country would have ground to a halt even more than it already did um so yeah quite a sort of um a technical um case but yeah interesting if we think back to those those dark days of covid
0: yeah and obviously not wanting to be uh ominous in any way COVID is kind of on the rise at the moment, right? So we may start to see these sorts of things coming back up. And I think it's super interesting because, you know, initially the the concern that this chap had is, like you said, a legitimate one and how do employers respond to that legitimate claim without kind of stopping running their businesses? So Mm -hmm. I think it's quite interesting the nuances that you get with that one. And hopefully, touch wood, we won't see any more. But as you say, it's useful to have that kind of test case, isn't it?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think the other thing it highlights is the importance of communication, which is what I, you know, hear so often from, you know, when I'm advising an employee, they'll kind of say, well, you know, if only my employer had said it like this, or they'd done this, you know, it really shows the importance of if the HR manager or whoever had said to this guy you know what are you concerned about mm. and he said I'm, um, you know explained his position and then they could have talked through with him actually this is what we've done these are the measures we've got in place you know is there anything else that we could do again making those kind of adjustments and talking it through and kind of reassuring the employee I think would have been key here I think one of the things was that there was just no communication between them he said I'm not coming back until lockdown eases he was off for about a month or so the employer got fed up and then dismissed him thinking he's got less than two years service we don't need to you know follow any procedure um and really yeah highlights the fact that that two-year rule that so many people are aware of and kind of rely on isn't going to be foolproof in all circumstances you can still bring claims like this you can still bring claims for discrimination or whistleblowing so yeah I, I think for me it really highlights the importance of communication and just talking talking to your staff and being seen to you know be con- to answer their concerns and uh, and be you know uh, conscientious about it
0: mm, no I totally agree righty next one is around menopause and disability discrimination and actually there's a lot of stuff about menopause in the press of late so I was quite excited to be able to chat to you about. Mm. Uh, so this one is Linsky versus um direct line. And apologies if I've um, not pronounced that correctly. Um, so this one is kind of around... Um reasonable adjustments again, but obviously linked to to menopause. So in this case, we've got uh, an individual. She's a a good performer. um, But when she starts to go through menopause, she feels um, anxious. There's issues with low mood, um, poor memory, brain fog, the things that you would generally associate with going through um, menopause. Um, Obviously, those things started to affect her job and her ability to carry out her role. And then having a chat with her line manager, they decided to kind of transfer her to another position. Um, that still doesn't work out um, she's still not really hitting her target um, and long story short she ends up getting a disciplinary warning um, she is sent to occupational health um, who say you know caution here because this person might be disabled in the way that you described earlier with that definition mm-hmm. um, uh, do you know what you might need to fill in the gaps here for me because I don't know why but her company sick pays withdrawn at some point which doesn't make any sense to me after she gets signed off sick she raises a grievance and she resigns so I've massively simplified that case mm-hmm. Um, she then brings multiple claims to the tribunal, um, but one of them being that failure to make reasonable adjustments for the fact that she is disabled. Um, she gets uh, not shy of um sixty four grand um as a payout, which is massive, yeah. um, and then also uh, a a payment for aggravated damages. So it would be great to talk a little bit more about what that means because that's quite an unusual piece to this puzzle too. Yeah. So have I missed anything. And what do you think about this case?
1: (laughs) Yeah, so I I think you've you've summarised it really well. I think that the sick pay was withdrawn. And I think that's another thing that kind of links to, you know, the the employer's attitude here. They basically said they had a discretionary enhanced sick pay, so they could pay her full pay if they wanted to. And they did for a while, but then they decided to withdraw that because they said that she wasn't doing enough to improve her own situation and thought that she was just kind of malingering, you know, Mm um so again not very supportive um of of her at all and kind of yeah then that added to the claims that that she had. Um, so, I mean, from an employment law perspective, there's been quite, as you say, a lot of talk in the press over the last couple of years about menopause, and there was a, a sort of a campaign for it to be added as a protected characteristic in itself, so that you know sure, it was sure. one of those categories like disability or age or sex or that kind of thing, that, or you know would classify it as a disability. Uh, sorry, as a protected characteristic the the government decided not to go that far at this stage but it can as you said fall within that definition of disability on the basis that it's a you know has a severe impact on your ability to undertake normal day-to-day activities um and the employment tribunal's decision here in terms of whether that was disability discrimination and whether they should have made more reasonable adjustments was they should have done that the employer should have done more than they did they should have you know thought about her menopause having that impact on her performance during the the disability uh sorry the the um the process where they gave her the warning um rather than just saying your performance is no good you know you're suddenly doing making all these mistakes and speaking to people in a bad way they should have thought about actually is the menopause having an impact on that she told them that she was experiencing these symptoms And what the tribunal said really was that they should have referred her to occupational health much sooner because then occupational health could have advised on the further adjustments that could have been made. You know, she was asking for things like, could she have a a break in between calls just so that she could kind of, you know, gather her thoughts, get ready for the next if she was in the call centre. And they said, no, they weren't going to do that. She asked for some refresher training because the menopause, I think, was affecting her confidence. Um, And they said, no, there's no budget for that. So, you know, things like that, that could have been potential adjustments that would have, you know, really made a difference to her and could have avoided that warning being issued. And occupational health, I think, is so important in those circumstances to really, you know, talk to the employee and make suggestions about things that that could be done. The employer isn't required to, you know, to bend over backwards to do absolutely everything they possibly could do to create a new role or anything like that. But they are expected to give, you know, reasonable considerations to changes that that could be made. Um, And in this case, they just were very dismissive. And for a big company like Direct Line, you know, it's quite surprising that that was their their attitude. And I think that perhaps one of the things that this case highlights is, again, a real change in attitude towards menopause, whereas maybe even... I don't know. Five years ago, it was kind of still a real taboo topic. To you know, women would sort of suffer in silence and wouldn't you know talk about things that needed to adjustments that needed to be made. It's really seen by men maybe as you know just hot flushes and that's all it is. But actually, there's so much more to menopause and it can affect affect people in so many different ways. And so one of the key takeaways I think for me and something that you know a lot of my clients are really starting to do is look at training their staff about um the impact of menopause on women you know and uh, making that compulsory for men to go to and understand you know that as a manager people that you are working with may be experiencing these things and there are you know simple adjustments that could be made um or at least just have a bit more consideration and patience i think for for people and the aggravated damages as you say in this case are quite relevant that's something that basically you're awarded where you've behaved in a in a particularly bad way and the employment tribunal effectively wants to punish you for it. And in this case, it was because they just refused to accept that she had a disability until right before the hearing, you know, whereas they should have been doing that during her employment. And it, you know, Occupational Health had said this lady might may, you know, her the impact on her may qualify as a disability. Um, and so they just didn't take it seriously. They just kind of, you know, seem to be very dismissive of it. And cases like this, you know, are particularly large employer, are ones that grab the headlines, you know, when it's um, things like discrimination or harassment and things like that, that's the stuff that's reported in the press and the impact on an organisation of, you know, having these kind of things, you know, written about them, it affects people wanting to do business with them it affects staff wanting to carry on working there attracting new employees so you know it it seems like such a I mean it's always easy to say in hindsight isn't it what what you should have done Uh, I don't know what you think about menopause policies Trish I think that that's something that's kind of like a new area we've talked already about policies today and I think that it's not a requirement obviously to have a menopause policy in place but it's something that some companies are starting to introduce um, I don't know if you've seen seen that or you advise your clients about it.
0: Yeah, it, I think it's a, a, a tricky one because I think um, in particular with this case, and to be honest, it's a bit of a, a trend, isn't it, with the things we talked about, it's communication. Yeah. I, if pretty much everything I touch that where there's been a dispute is something hasn't been communicated properly or you've not been sensitive to somebody. Um, and I guess there's an argument that with menopause actually you know it these people are going through symptoms that you could class with being unwell so why wouldn't you treat them as though that that's how you know that's what they're going through and be kind of mindful of that and communicate to them about that and look at ways that you can adjust their workplace so part of me thinks as a decent employer you should just be treating this as a, a as an as an illness um and you know because that's the kind of symptoms that people are experiencing so therefore then would you need a, men- a, a menopause policy don't necessarily know But equally, I think it's important to also be clear with employees about how they're going to be treated when these things happen. So I'm not sure if I'm of the view that maybe it needs to be added into a sickness absence policy or if it needs to be a separate thing. But I think there needs to be something. I think the the debate's still open about kind of where it goes. But for me you know treat people in the way that you would expect to be treated right if you were going through this male female or whatever gender you are how would you want a compassionate employer to respond and I think it comes right back to your your point of you'd want them to be communicating right and talking to you about how they can support you so I think if you as an employer if you root your response in that whether it's written down in one policy or or not that's the key thing because that's where it always goes wrong it's that communication piece for me
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think from a, you know, from an employment tribunal perspective, that will, you know, go so far in showing that you are a decent employer who has given due consideration that if somebody's pouring their heart out to you and saying this is how it's making me feel and you're just dismissing it saying no get on with your job everyone else can do it you know when you're not taking account of those personal circumstances as I say you're not expected to to do everything that you possibly ever could do but if you're talking to somebody about you know making some adjustments in line with the 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 demands of your business and what you can reasonably do then that you're acting reasonably and the employee is much more likely to feel that they're being supported and you know valued within an organization rather than you know probably in this case I think she resigned to claim constructive dismissal because she just felt that she was being forced out of the company Mm -hmm. which was you know a nuisance which no one should feel like. Um, for going through something that you know, fifty percent of the population are going to at some point in their life. Yeah. Um, so menopause is a huge area. I think that we're going to see this is one of the first cases, sort of dealing with that. Um. And so I think that you know it's certainly not going to be the last. There's going to be you know much more um, activity around this in the in, this year in the coming years.
0: Yeah, I think for me the key thing is if you are going to be a decent employer, you want to be a decent employer. And show up and be a decent employer.
1: <laughs> definitely. You know? Yeah. And don't just have, you know, so often a policy. Yeah, we've got a nice menopause policy. We, you know, that's nice to have, but you've actually got to live it, you know, you've got to, you know, and that's gotta come from the top down, really. Um, so yeah, be a decent employer, but don't just be a decent employer on paper.
0: Yeah, no tick boxing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> oh, I'm kinda of gutted that we've got to the last one to be honest. This is really fun. <laughs> um but last case we'll have to do this again because this is fun yeah Um,
1: absolutely
0: um so last case is about uh defamatory references and i always think this is quite interesting because i tend to get like a range of references through and think oh, probably wouldn't have done that myself yeah um, so this one is Smith versus Surridge and others. Uh, and this one centres around two teachers who apply for a new job at school. Um, within the reference that's provided, it says that there were some safeguarding issues and with kind of no other context around that statement. And obviously the school then withdraws the offers of, of jobs because who wants teachers where there have been safeguarding issues? Um, both teachers um, argue the wording and say that that suggests that they've mistreated students in some way, which they were um, asserting that they hadn't. Um, and the um, as part of the finding, um, there was a discussion around people would take the, the wording that was within that um, reference at face value. And because you take it as face value, actually, that was a defamatory statement. Mm-hmm. What do you think and what advice would you give to, to employers around how they should issue references and the kind of the importance of wording?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that this case is a real kind of cautionary tale about references and there's loads of misconceptions I think about giving of references as well you know I hear all the time you can't give a bad reference and that's not true you know legally there is no obligation on an employer to give a reference at all unless you're in certain sectors say like financial services or you know teaching that kind of thing there's more of an obligation but um the the giving of references I think has really evolved over the last I don't know 40 years something like that and my the norm that I see now is that most companies now just want to give what we call kind of a standard factual reference, which is essentially, yeah, they were there between this date and this date, and this was their job title, and we don't say any more than that. And that is exactly for reasons like this, where an employee could say, you've given me a bad reference and you've lost me a job. Or the new employer, if you give a glowing reference saying this person's wonderful and wouldn't hesitate to employ them and all the rest of it, the new employer then says, oh, I don't think they're that we're talking about the same person. I only gave them the job on the back of the reference that you gave and I don't, you know, we don't want to employ them anymore. So either way, because of the world that we live in where everyone wants to sue each other, unfortunately, um, the kind of the, the, the textbook answer has become just give a standard factual reference. You don't have to give a reference in most industries, but if you do, There is an obligation to not provide you know misleading or untrue information. And so if you are just giving the facts of yes, they worked for us, this was the job they did, we don't say any more than that, then you're kind of you know sticking to the bare minimum. And I I do see employees that I advise who've maybe worked for the same company for like 20 years who are totally shocked when they get a reference like that and they're really offended, you know, and they say, Well, I've done all this great work. And you know, normally you'd give a real kind of rundown of the employment history and what they've done and you know their role within the organization which just isn't the norm anymore in terms of what i see i don't know what you see trish
0: yeah no i'm a massive fan of a standard reference um yeah and if i'm hopefully i'm not speaking for the whole of the hr profession um but if i see a reference that's got loads of detail and information in it that's a red flag to me I,
1: Absolutely. i,
0: I just want to know did the person work for you in the job that they were in from this this date to this day um i don't even really want to know about salary or anything like that that's all i need to know so exactly the same as you i've um i've dealt with um settlement agreements with um clients where the individual's like well I want a- the reference bulked out more and I'm saying like, we can do that but genuinely it's a red flag to somebody like me when I see that because it says to me there might have been some sort of an agreement or that there's um not that there's anything wrong with going through an agreement but it kind of um insinuates that there might have been a problem um and equally if not then what's going on with this company's HR department not that that's my issue but it is a bit of a flag so yeah I- I'm definitely a fan of a standard reference
1: yeah <laughs> Definitely. I think the other thing is that uh, it's important to have consistency in terms of the reference that's that being given and to make sure that you know who's giving the references. Because sometimes, you know, people might say, oh, I'll ask my colleague, you know, to give me a nice reference. And you, the employer may not have no idea that that's going out, but it's going out in the name of the company. And so there's a real risk then that, you know, someone might be given, you know, a glowing reference and somebody just given that that template's kind of factual reference, and then complain that they've been treated differently. And why is that? And have they been discriminated against? And I think in this case, the reference was given by a PA to the head teacher. And really, you know, perhaps if it had been given by the head teacher themselves, that wouldn't have been the reference that would have been given. So again, the kind of awareness around who's doing what, making sure that you're consistent training maybe having a policy in terms of what the reference is just to make sure that everyone's treated the same and that hopefully there's not going to be um, issues like this and I think that the other thing that people sometimes do is try and put some kind of disclaimer in the reference to say you know this reference is given in good faith but we accept no liability for any reliance you might place on it and some you know employers might think that's enough that's going to get us off a claim like this but it it won't you know saying Hmm. that is just know it's just words and if you've said something that has affected someone's reputation as in this case um then they're still going to bring a claim for defamation nothing that you put in the reference is going to change that so i think you know if you're giving references the answer is be very careful about the information that that you're um disclosing and don't you know use it as a revenge or you know to to dish the dirt on everything that, that has ever happened mm. um and in most cases that standard factual reference is normally what I would advise as well
0: yeah no I'm totally with you on that thank you I've really enjoyed doing this and I'm you genuinely do. gutted that we're stopping <laughs> <laughs> um, how can people get hold of you if they want to get some stellar employment law advice
1: yeah, sure. So, um, give me a call um, my on my direct dial, um, or drop me an email, or find me on LinkedIn. Um, you know, any of those.
0: Awesome, and I'll I'll pop uh, links to everything in um, at least YouTube or wherever I can, wherever we put this video. And apologies, my dog always has to join in with a podcast. So hopefully you haven't heard him, but he's been barking and snuffling. So you might have seen me looking away at times. Like, oh God, so much. <laughs> I I
1: didn't hear a thing, but it may have been because I was too busy waffling on
0: about employment law. Oh, that's awesome! Thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it, and I am definitely going to hit you up to do this again because it was fun.
1: I know, I love it. Love a good geek off about employment.
0: (laughs)